of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave simpleness and live and walk in the way of insight. From the book of Proverbs, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's quite an attendance this morning, so I have to bring some of you up to speed. <laughs> Over the past few weeks in the readings and indeed in the preaching, we have focused, and I didn't instruct it, I want to do this, it's just the way it went. We have focused on what is called Jesus' bread of life discourse in the Gospel of John. This has been interspersed with readings from Paul's letter to the Ephesians and readings from the Old Testament which reinforce this theme. The first of those was a wonderful scene in the book of Exodus in which manna is poured out on the people in the wilderness. God hears the murmurings of this impatient people and he feeds them. Not just any food, but bread given directly from God. The people experience hunger, hunger that originates in the stomach, and God responds to their need. And in the next Old Testament selection from last Sunday, we read from Deuteronomy, the account of Moses teaching the people just before his death as he prepares them to take the land of promise. They're standing in sight of Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know you can look up to those heights, you can look up to the hills, and you can see where this happened. From that high vantage point, they can see the whole land, this wonderful, rich, incredibly lush land, such as they must have thirsted after for 40 years in the desert, eating only manna. And it is here that Moses delivers this deathbed speech, which is what Deuteronomy is. It's an extended exposition of the law. But listen to what he says here. He says, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Did you hear that? He let you hunger so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone. The people are fed mightily, not just on manna, but bread from, bread from God himself, but on the rich and abiding word of God, constantly proceeding from the mouth of God. And it is that by which they will live in the land. So as they stand overlooking that good land, as Moses says, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, which you know what that means, right? It means you're gonna be able to make beer, okay? Of vines and fig trees, meaning what? You're gonna be able to make wine. And pomegranates, which if you've never had a pomegranate plucked from a tree, it's one of life's great pleasures. A land of olive trees and honey, a land in which they will eat bread without scarcity, in which they will lack nothing, in which they will no longer be hungry. The people are reminded by Moses that amidst all of that abundance and wealth, they will continue to hunger unless they are fed on the word of God. 
God's people are to be continually nourished by communion with the living God, attentive to his word, offering prayers and supplications, and offering themselves in obedient sacrifice. This is still so much the truth and something which we need to hear, that we can have absolutely every material good imaginable and still suffer from hunger, a hunger to know God. I'd venture to guess that very few of, us, a few of you have missed a meal in the last year. Very few of you have been hungry for more than a day or so. And yet, here you are. What is it that you came for? Well, Father Nicholas answered that question last week. It's bread. You came here in search of bread, but what kind of bread? One cannot hold fast to God by the help of food or comfort or a nice house or driving just the right and most luxurious car. Rather, God's people are to read and meditate on Holy Scripture to be shot through with the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. So we see that the land of promise is not an end in itself, but rather a means to the people meeting God on the holy mountain. This is quite often what Exodus movies get wrong. They kind of hold up French egalitarianism in an anachronistic way, or some idea of natural rights or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as the reason that God leads the people out of slavery in the wilderness. This wouldn't have made sense in the ancient world. No, God brought them out of Egypt so that they could worship him and him alone, so that they could commune with him on the holy mountain first in Sinai and later on Mount Zion, where they will attend to what can best be described as an ongoing and continual feast. We often miss this critical intent, don't we? We like to think that what happens in the temple is a sacrifice that's consumed on the altar, burned up in the fire, and this is not the case. Most of the time, the people ate what was sacrificed. They drank the wine, they drank, they ate the bread, they ate the meat as well. It is no coincidence that the people are commanded to go up to Jerusalem on three major festivals, and what do they do on those festivals? They hear the word of God, and they feast. They hear the word of God, and they feast. Uh, to this day, Jewish mothers and fathers give their kids a little honey on the lips before they instruct them in the law. Why? So they will associate the teaching of God's word with sweetness, with feasting, with goodness, with grace. And we often miss that this is mirrored in the Christian liturgy, a twofold action of reading and meditating on God's word, and then this magnificent outpouring of the word incarnate upon the church in the Eucharistic feast. We taste that wine, we eat that bread. In fact, before the Wednesday Eucharist last week, my daughter was in the sacristy and she looked up and she looked at me pouring wine in a cruet and she said, I knew it was wine. She loves it, rightly so. Our children will be connoisseurs of good wine by the time they're 10. Uh, but hear what the great Anglican spiritual writer Evelyn Underhill had to say about this. And it's a lengthy quote, so I hope you humor me, but it's so good. And I thank um, Father Crossway for this. 
The Christian liturgy, the common prayer of the family of Christ, is a twofold act of worship. We distort its character and give it best an impoverished adoration if we forget this and find all the significance of the service in the communion with which it ends. Each of its two movements, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table, mounts to a crisis which corresponds with one of the two supreme self-disclosures of God to man. The first culminates in the solemn reading of the gospel. There the living Christ, God's uttered word within history, speaks to his church and his saving and sacrificial action in time and in eternity is brought to mind. The second culminates in the great Eucharistic sacrifice of oblation, thanksgiving, and communion. Here she says, that church presents before God the sacred mystery of this ceaseless sacrificial action. The abiding presence of the incarnate is made known to the worshiping soul, and the food of eternal life is received in the breaking of bread. Thus, through word and ritual act, all the needs and capacities of man's mixed nature, mind, will, sense, and spirit are met and fulfilled by the divine charity and are given their opportunity for adoring response. This constitutes what we might call the third movement of Holy Scripture. In the first, we see God's unceasing care for a broken creation, of which we are very much a broken part, culminating in his feeding of his people with manna. In the second, we see God showering his people with his word continuously, bringing them into his living presence. And finally, in the third movement, we see the final plan. God filling all in all with his divine presence, setting a banquet table in the midst of his people, a banquet wherein life is obtained in the most simple yet most rich of foods, himself in bread and wine. Come, Proverbs says, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave simpleness and live and walk in the way of insight. This is what Holy Scripture continually sets before us, a feast, not of right thoughts or of advanced technology or good philosophy, as wonderful as those things can be, but they are not wisdom. The feast is rather a feast on the presence of God himself. And that is what we have come together to receive today, a feast in word and sacrament, to know Jesus through his word and through his sacrament. There is a rather simple statement in theology of which we must be constantly reminded, that God is the only good to be enjoyed for his own sake. Nothing else can stand in that place. Absolutely nothing. Indeed, what this means is that even things like wisdom cannot be stand-ins for God. In scripture, to get wisdom is to dwell in the presence of God, to meet him. So the call of Proverbs goes out, calling people into the house where sacrifice has been made, where bread and wine have been set before the people. To the church, we should rightly see this pointing us to the Eucharist, pointing us to the very Jesus who says, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. My heart beats in my chest this morning 
Sometimes when I'm stressed, I feel it more than others. And I know that that's not enough for me to have a beating heart in my body. I must have more than that. Though I have all the signs of life, though I have food on my table, though I have air conditioning that works, I know that I suffer from a lack of wisdom. And in encountering the word of God, in encountering the living Christ, not the dead Christ, my heart burns within me just like it did in those disciples on the road to Emmaus, yearning for this feast which has been set before me. I remember as a young seminarian, the priest that I worked for would task me with taking communion out to nursing homes. And I would go in with the Eucharist around my neck in a pouch. And as soon as people saw that, hands would go out. One after another. As the Lord offered himself to them, they offered themselves to him with every last bit of energy they had left. <laughs> the church's encounter with Christ in the Eucharist, both word and sacrament, is an encounter of total sacrifice resulting in thanksgiving, which nourishes the saints with nothing less than the wisdom of God, Jesus giving his divine self to those whom he calls his brothers and sisters. St. Bonaventure once said, and I know that somebody will be happy about this one, that if you learn everything except Christ, you learn nothing. And if you learn nothing except Christ, you learn everything. Thomas Aquinas, after writing what very well may be the greatest theological work of all time, knelt down in the chapel, his work completed, knelt before the reserved sacrament, and speaking of this great work said, all is straw. Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthian church, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul writes this, he's not speaking of a knowledge such as might pertain to facts, but a knowledge pertaining to that of the family, that of a household, an intimate communal knowledge of a living person to whom you are related in flesh and blood. And beloved, that's true of you and me as Christians. We have been related and united to Jesus through flesh and blood. That is the very covenantal exchange affected among us today. Jesus says, after all, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It is this sacrificial and mysterious act which makes us what we truly are. The theologian Henri de Lubac once wrote that in the first millennium it was understood that the Eucharist makes the church, while in the second millennium it was understood that the church makes the Eucharist, which is a paltry thing to believe compared to the first. And he was right in pointing us to a return to the former, for that is the understanding of Scripture. In this Eucharistic encounter, the Lord's bride, the church of which you and I are a part, offers herself to her beloved spouse, made possible by his offering of himself to her. This is all summed up in the image which is before you this day on the screen, 
And Jesus is presenting to us holy wisdom. That's what the icon is called. It's written there in Greek, if you can read it. And holy wisdom is depicted as an angel seated on an altar. She is sent forth from God and adorned with virtue by the grace of God. That's what all those jewels are. You'll note that she's seated on twin pillows, a red one and a blue one, depicting the joining of divinity to human flesh, both in the mystery of the incarnation and in the joining of the flesh of the church to the life of God. On the left is Mary, who shows us her son, the incarnate word who was conceived in her womb. And on the right is John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom, who presents the church. That's you and me as we look at this image, a bride prepared for her husband. And at the top, you see all those angels gathered around a book stand. Can you see it? And on that book stand is not a book, but a cross. This should remind us of the words of Paul. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. To this marriage bed, to this altar, to this temple, to this feast, you and I have come this morning. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? It's a glorious thing. Come, the Lord says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>